Welcome to Practicing Clinicians Exchange Podcast, transforming the care of patients with non-small cell lung cancer, optimizing immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Today's episode features Dr. Sandeep P. Patel, Associate Professor, Department of Medicine from the University of California at San Diego. Dr. Patel will summarize key evidence about immune checkpoint inhibitors in advanced NSCLC, including individualizing therapy and managing adverse events. This information was presented as part of a series of presentations during a recent PCE Oncology Conference. After listening, please visit pce.is forward slash ONC22 to access the slide sets from the conference and additional related activities, including a series of interactive patient case simulations focusing on the application of using immune checkpoint inhibitors in advanced NSCLC and managing immune-related adverse events in clinical practice. I'm Sandy Patel, a medical oncologist and associate professor at the University of California, San Diego, and today I'll be discussing treatment advances in non-small cell lung cancer related to immune checkpoint blockade. Our focus today will be on currently approved immune checkpoint inhibitors and the role of biomarker testing for their best use in patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Molecular testing in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer is key to understanding the best treatment options for patients. Broad-based molecular profiling that encompasses the relevant driver mutations, in particular EGFR and ALK, but also ROS1, MET, RET, HER2, NTRAC, BRAF, and others are key. And so it's important to test and not guess. And uh, molecular profiling can be done both in tumor tissue as well as cell-free DNA um, in, in a couple tubes of blood. And so it's important to understand that before we initiate broad-based systemic therapy, in particular immunotherapy, uh, that we want to understand the patient's molecular landscape. And one key point about this is pdl one expression can be a red herring at times, meaning patients with EGFR, ALK, and other driver mutations can have pdl one scores greater than 50% that don't actually represent a potential for a, a robust immune response, but rather high oncogene-driven pdl one expression. It's important because the pdl one tends to come back really quickly because it's an immunohistochemistry panel, so it takes typically two to three days at most, versus an NGS panel, which can take up to three weeks in some cases. So it's important that we wait for the totality of results before we start treating a patient. If you do have to treat a patient, this may be a good window while waiting for the next generation sequencing to do radiation or chemotherapy alone, and then add an immunologic and in subsequent cycles, similar to what we do in colorectal cancer with bevacizumab, for example, after surgery. And so actionable mutations in non-small cell lung cancer can be anywhere from 40 to 50% of your patient population. And we, so we only know if we look and we don't have to memorize each particular aberration or its appropriate treatment. In fact, the only lab test I order in clinic that tells me what to do is next generation sequencing because it tells you not only the molecular aberration, but the FDA approved treatments in that specific molecular phenotype. And so we want to avoid, though, the red herring of acting on the PDL1 um, by itself and wait for the complete broad based molecular profile before uh, introducing an immunologic for patients. And so, once we've gone about our due diligence in terms of understanding the molecular landscape um, and opportunities for a patient, targeted um, treatments for those patients who need targeted therapy um, as opposed to immunotherapies, we have multiple options in terms of. Uh, the immune strata and what we can do to help best help take care of patients. And so for those patients with a tumor proportion score greater than 50%, we can use pembrolizumab, 
atezolizumab or simiplumab as monotherapy or chemotherapy uh, plus pembrolizumab, which I tend to favor for patients with higher disease burden, more of a resistance molecular phenotype, for example, STK11 keep one mutations, or patients with brain metastasis or otherwise high burden of disease and visceral crisis who may benefit from that introduction um, of chemotherapy. For pd on 1% to 49%, so you see a variety of different options for squamous and non-squamous disease. I think broadly for 1% to 49%, uh, what we need is really a combination approach uh, with PD-1 inhibitors, and whether that's chemotherapy as the best combination partner, chemotherapy with bevacizumab and an immunologic, or two immunologics, for example, ipilimumab and nivolumab, CTLA-4 and PD-1, the best combination remains to be seen. Uh, there's no been heads, uh, head-to-head comparison. But the idea that I think a PD-1 inhibitor by itself is likely inadequate of treatment for these patients. And then for PD-1 less than 1%, consideration of chemotherapy plus PD-1. And is this a, a place in which CTLA-4 blockade may be particularly efficacious with ipilimumab-based combinations or an IO-IO doublet with nivolumab plus ipilimumab, the so-called Checkmate 227 regimen. And so there, there are multiple options. I think the key concept is to do the appropriate molecular testing upstream and ensure the patient is an actual driver mutation. And then to do the PDL1 test and really get a sense of is the patient PDL1 high or not. If patients PDL1 high, they have a low volume disease. You can think about anti PD1 directed therapy. For pretty much everybody else, chemotherapy plus PD1 is very reasonable. And then thinking about integrating CTLA4 potentially for patients with low PDL1 scores, squamous histology, or high risk disease is one reasonable approach. There are multiple nuances when thinking about which regimen may make sense for a given patient. I think for those patients with a higher burden of disease, for example, symptomatic metastases, addition of chemotherapy may be particularly important to immunotherapy to allow for an initial debulking, even if patients are PDL1 high. Uh, for patients with brain metastasis, I think a combinatorial strategy is likely warranted, whether that be with CTLA4 inhibition, ipilimumab, and nivolumab um, with chemotherapy or chemotherapy plus um, an anti-PD-1-directed agent, for example, pembrolizumab um, or anti-PD-L1-atezolizumab in combination with bevacizumab and chemotherapy. Uh, I think when we're thinking broadly about the treatments for these patients, the goal really is for an initial um, use of chemotherapy, um, sometimes with maintenance, uh, typically two to four cycles, um, and then continuation of the immunologic as maintenance therapy for really up to two years in the clinical trials. And so in my own clinic, once we reach the two-year mark, uh, we'll often get uh, imaging and get a sense of a patient's immune-related adverse event burden, the side effects from immunotherapy relative to the depth of their response. And if patients are in a complete remission or even a very good partial remission in terms of a solitary lesion that remains, uh, we may consider consolidative radiotherapy and consider taking a break. As many of these patients and many of the data we see out to five years, six years for survival, is, is three years after their last dose of treatment because the actual drug is the patient's own immune system. Similar to how the immunologics help allow for a long-term control of cancer, similar we can have what are called immune-mediated or immune-related adverse events, IMAEs or IRAEs. And these are really unique to immunotherapy. They're driven by the patient's own immune response against their cancer, which is really unleashed by these immunologics. Uh, combinatorial strategies tend to lead to more immune-related adverse events and they can affect any organ system, uh, though the most common tend to be dermatologic toxicities of the skin, as well as endocrinopathies predominantly mediated by hypothyroidism. Now, one thing to remember is compared to chemotherapy, where the kinetics of the cytopenias, for example, 
is very predictable and tends to nadir around day five to 10, let's say. With immunologics, um, the initial uh, emergence of that immune-related adverse event may actually emerge months after their last dose of scheduled chemo or scheduled immunotherapy, meaning if they have a year of scheduled consolidative immunotherapy, for example, or adjuvant immunotherapy, their first IMAE, their first IRAE, could happen three months after the last dose. In fact, in our EMR, the flag for a patient being on immunotherapy when they're admitted, we initially set to expire at six months after the last dose of immunotherapy, but after feedback and some rare delayed endocrinopathies, we actually moved that back to 12 months after their last dose to make sure that we weren't missing any of these rare toxicities. And so it's important to talk to your patients and especially their caregivers about these toxicities. It's almost expected at some juncture to have a dermatopathy in terms of um, skin changes. Um, usually it's pruritic um, rashes and topical steroids will help. Hypothyroidism tends to be quite common as well. And in the more severe side effects, for example, colitis, uh, which typically manifests as watery diarrhea, although one must rule out C. diff. Pneumonitis, some inflammation of the lung that has a very complex differential diagnosis because it could be pulmonary embolism, myocarditis, cancer progression, viral illness, or bacterial illness. It's important to have that broad differential. I think one commonality, though, amongst all the IRAEs is that the initial best therapy for these um, are, in fact, steroids. This isn't a five-day burst of steroids, but rather a taper over three to four weeks. And if you do decide to re-challenge patients with immunotherapy, which you know, one should be cautious about and think about the severity of the side effect, the responsiveness to the steroids and where the patient is in their treatment journey in terms of their treatment, their alternatives, this could uh, result in recrudescence or re-emergence of that immune-related toxicity. And so typically, I'll do a steroid taper, prednisone one milligram per kilogram, and pretty much taper over three to four weeks. So I'm usually with a PPI. If a taper is longer than four weeks, I'd highly suggest PJP prophylaxis to ensure that we don't create another issue for that patient. And then thinking about rechallenge is a very personalized and nuanced decision, as mentioned, that relates to severity as well as responsiveness to steroids. But I think the key is caregiver education. As the first person who will often identify these toxicities, will be the person who's the, the primary caregiver and, and, and who's taking care of the patient. Um, we typically give out wallet cards so that if the patient ends up in an emergency room that doesn't have access to the medical records or if the patient doesn't have a recollection, the ER physician knows that they're on this treatment and that they'll consider giving steroids along with ruling out C. diff, for example, for, for diarrhea. And so um, education and having those resources um, really is important. And, and so a couple of key takeaways from this discussion is that broadly, um, we've improved mortality in non-small cell lung cancer to a substantial degree to a point that we've bent the overall cancer mortality curve um, over the past two years favorably. And we've done so through appropriate broad-based molecular profiling and appropriate use of targeted therapy versus immunotherapy and thinking contextually about which subsets may benefit from combinatorial approaches. To do this, rather than um, just treating with an immunologic or even based on the pdl one test, uh, we wait for the results of the next generation sequencing. This helps us find the right answer and also helps us avoid the wrong answer. And so it's key for these patients. And that really education of these patients uh, without an action mutation improves survival independent of PDL one expression, meaning that once we know patients lack a targetable driver mutation, uh, we can in fact match them to their best um, immunotherapy, monotherapy, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, or immunoimmunotherapy combination. And that once we have patients on these treatments, it's important to educate about IRAEs. 
and educate both the patient and caregiver. Think about wallet cards so patients are outside of your health system. They bring that information with them because um, the understanding that diarrhea is something meaningful and that breathing changes are meaningful and really any symptom can represent an IRAE that's even more rare is key. If you'd like additional information, um, this is available on the PCE website at practicingclinicians.com and we can learn more with patient case simulations designed to provide practical experience managing patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Sandy Patel at UC San Diego and thank you for joining today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and invite you to participate in other activities related to the PCE Oncology Conferences by visiting pce.is forward slash ONC22. As always, thank you for listening.